0: You're listening to the N2K Space Network. Hi, I'm Maria Varmazis, host of the T-Minus Space Daily Podcast, and you're listening to T-Minus Overview. In this program, we'll feature some of the conversations from our daily podcast with the people who are forging the path in the new space era— from industry leaders, technology experts and pioneers, to educators, policymakers, research organizations and more. On today's program, we're gonna focus on the infrastructure that is developing across the United States to support launches, spaceports. Well, what is a spaceport? While the federal aviation administration licenses them but does not define what one is and yes there's a reason for that and we'll be hearing more about it from pam underwood from the faa office of spaceports the first purpose-built commercial spaceport spaceport america was built in new mexico We'll speak to Executive Director Scott McLaughlin about the economic impact of Spaceport America on the state of New Mexico. And where else in the U.S. is developing their own space launch facility? Among the many states looking at developing a site is up in vacation land. Yeah, Maine. We'll speak to Emily Dwinnells from the Maine Space Complex. Pam Underwood is the director at the Federal Aviation Administration's Office of Spaceports in the Commercial Space Transportation Office. And I asked Pam what her office does.
1: Many people are familiar with the Federal Aviation Administration and what they do for the airline industry. Of course, we regulate the airline industry, we have air traffic controllers, we certify airplanes, we, you know, manage pilot certificates, but what's little known is what the FAA also does for the commercial space transportation industry. And that's where we come in. Uh, My office, Office of Commercial Space Transportation, is responsible for regulating the safety of launch and reentry and the operation of spaceports or launch and reentry sites. That's the piece that most people don't know. Um, It's been really exciting. I've actually been with the office for a little over 17 years. And to see the growth in the commercial space transportation industry is just exciting. We don't regulate launches that are by and for the government. So when NASA was flying the shuttle program that was by NASA for NASA, because that was a NASA purpose, we did not regulate that. But now that government agencies are using commercial industry, we regulate those activities. For example, now that NASA is using the Commercial companies to do resupply of cargo and crew to the International Space Station. All of those missions are 100% licensed by the FAA because it is actually a commercial company that's conducting the launch, making those safety decisions. They're the ones that design and operate the vehicles. So, therefore, it requires oversight from the federal government, which is where the FAA comes in. In those cases, the government, NASA in this case, is only buying services. So, it really allows them to use their program dollars more wisely and not have to own and operate vehicles. Um, And it helps be the success of the commercial industry. So we regulate the commercial industry, but please know that does include sometimes government as a customer.
0: So um, spaceport licensing, let's move on to that topic. So, um, so many questions I can ask. So do we need more spaceports in America?
1: That's a great question. And I I get that question all the time. So some people may not know, but we actually have 14 FAA-licensed spaceports around the country. They're all over the place. Not only they're in Florida, we've got them in Virginia, Colorado, Oklahoma, California, Texas, New Mexico. They're all over the place. We're very rich when it comes to spaceport infrastructure. We're very fortunate in this country to have it. So what I often get is, why do we need any more? Isn't that enough? Well, how many airports do we have? Did anyone judge the number of airports? No. I mean, it's really a matter of convenience based on where people wanted to go. And it's the same thing for space. There's a little bit more physics involved because you have to consider trajectories and where you want to be on orbit if you're going to orbital, suborbital, the types of vehicles you're flying. But it's still the same. We shouldn't look at the number necessarily of spaceports. We should look at the capabilities. What does our industry need? What do we need? And if it's options so that they can have more capability for their customers, then that's what we should have. So it should be capability driven rather than just chasing a number. Because otherwise someone could say, I don't know, five's enough or 20 is enough or 50. I mean, pick the number. It's, it's kind of a bit arbitrary. Let's look at the capabilities, which is kind of what they do on the airport's perspective. You know, if I want to get to different, these parts of the country, then I need to have airports in those locations.
0: That's a great answer to a, a, an admittedly uh, overly simple question. So thank you. <laughs> I appreciate that. Uh, so uh, I, if I understand correctly, um, there are different types of spaceports. It's not just like it's a spaceport and it's just this one thing. There are different kinds. Can you walk me through what what that means?
1: Absolutely. So we have different spaceports grow up depending on the types of customers they're trying to serve and the locations where they're at. This goes back to the physics question because not all places are really suitable for different kinds of launches. So right now we have horizontal launches, meaning they take off like an airplane and they land typically like an airplane, or we have vertical launches. That's what I think people see more of. Last year alone, uh, our launch rates, 92% of our launches were vertical. So that's where the pointy end goes up and the flames come out the bottom. That's a vertical launch. That's the vertical launch. The horizontal launch is a little different. They take off and land like airplanes and they usually use a runway. So that's where the different types of spaceports come in. All the 14 FAA licensed spaceports that I talked about before have specific features. Um, Five of them are are vertical, the rest of them are horizontal. Um, And so therefore they've satisfied different launch vehicle companies depending on the type of vehicle they're operating. Um, But then there's other things that spaceports need too. So many people focus on just the launch. But if you look at the ecosystem that is a spaceport, they have to support a lot more than just a launch day. So many things have to happen in order to lead up that launch. Think about all the testing or manufacturing that has to come in order to enable that launch or the instrumentation checkouts or builds that they have to have. The spaceport has to have all of that infrastructure to be able to support those preparatory activities in addition to just the launch. So that goes into the capabilities as well. Can you test your engines from that site and then go down the road and then actually conduct a launch? Or do you have to test your engine someplace else and then go to a different place to launch. That's the things that the space companies need to put together when they're looking at the capability of the
0: spaceports. Correct me if I'm wrong. The FAA does not define what a spaceport is. Is that true? And if That's so, true. why? Yeah. So
2: it,
1: um, What's actually defined in regulation is launch or reentry site. That is actually the regulatory term. We call them spaceports because it's a generic term that refers to both. It's both a launch and reentry site. Now, I will tell you, in 2018, Congress, in the FAA Reauthorization Act, did define what a spaceport is. But that's in a reauthorization act. It's not really regulations because we didn't flow it down into our regulations yet. But there's starting to go in that direction. Um, but it's not defined. Like, is it officially they are either a launch or a reentry site? <laughs> um,
0: does it does it cause problems that it's not defined? I mean, is it not a big deal, or is it just a matter of nomenclature? I mean, is it a
1: so I don't think it causes problems, but maybe that's just me. I might be one of those people too close to the problem <laughs> for sure. To me, it's it's a you know kind of like slang. So rather than calling it the proper proper name of launch or entry site, we've called it spaceport, which has kind of been what we would generally call slang in the industry. So it hasn't caused problems from a regulatory perspective because they will either get a launch site operator license or a reentry site operator license from the FAA. And once they have those, for example, you can go on the FAA launch site launch website now and you'll see a map and it says spaceports. <laughs> it, so okay, so, it it's we on our map. <laughs> so we even use it kind of as a generic term, um, but the proper name really is launch a reentry site.
0: So we've been talking about different kinds of spaceports. How does one license spaceports? Yeah. So the
1: spaceports have requirements that they have to meet. So you have to fill out an application and it's not like an application to get a driver's license. It's like a page long. You're talking volumes and volumes of data and primarily spaceports have to meet things such as control of public access because more than likely they're going to have activities or maybe certain commodities on, on site that they would or might be hazardous to people. So you have to control people, keep people from getting into places they could get hurt. So control of public access is part of it. You also have to consider Um, environmental assessment and impacts. Based on the kind of vehicles you want to um, host there, what could be the environmental implications from that? So they will have to undertake an environmental review. They'll also do something called a launch site safety assessment, which will take a look at the operations they propose and whether or not they could be done there safely, meeting FAA safety requirements. So they will really kind of do a feasibility study, if you want to call it, to demonstrate to the FAA that what they want to host there can be done and meet safety. So there's quite a bit of information that has to be provided to the FAA to be able to show compliance with the regulations. If they show compliance, then they get a launch license. If they don't, then, then the FAA will work with them to see if there's other ways they could meet it. Um, but there's it's a very uh, stringent process for sure. And we always lead with safety in the FAA.
0: Our second guest is executive director of New Mexico's Spaceport America. Scott McLaughlin talks us through the economic impact that the spaceport has had in the state.
2: Well, sure. The, the report uh, is only for uh, 2022. So it's just a one-year estimate of economic impact. And a lot of people say that economic impact is always positive, meaning if you do something, you always kind of get something out of it. So it's it's hard to gauge. Um you know what? Is, what is the the correct amount that you'd expect at this time? But what it shows on on the on the summary is what it shows is we have about 811 jobs that are from the spaceport's existence. That includes what are called direct, indirect, and induced. And then the total value added is about 60 million, and that's the that's kind of the raw input into the economy. And then there's another number about double that, which is sort of the the money that get gets reused but the 60 million is really kind of the big uh thing that we want to focus on in the jobs
0: sure okay so that you said uh, i'm going to see if i remember direct indirect and then induced if i remember
2: right well in economic terms direct are the, are the jobs that are directly connected with the economic activity whatever it is so if you build a mcdonald's the people who are working for mcdonald's are the direct employees so they're the ones directly working for them induced has to do with uh, the people who show up and work on the ice coolers and the air conditioner and, and maybe pave the, the parking lot. And then, and then the, I'm sorry, that was the indirect. And then the induced are, for example, now that you have employees in the area, they have to go shopping. So you eventually have to hire some extra full-time equivalents at the grocery store. Some of these are direct numbers. Like the direct value is, is um, Measured directly from Virgin Galactic, our 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 primary customer at the spaceport—not our only customer, but our primary primary one—and then the other ones are estimated through something called Implan, which is a commonly used model that tries to model uh, economic impact. impact. So, a very interesting study. It was done by New Mexico State University, um, part of their Center for Border Economic Development, and so we had some real PhD economic um, economists who worked on this, and so we're going to try and do one every year.
0: And I'm curious um, for you, I mean, the, the numbers, I mean, I, I don't have any sense of, those sound like big numbers to me, <laughs> but as much as my understanding goes, but I mean, in terms of what it means for you at Spaceport America, like w- when you saw the report, what, did that crystallize something in your mind? Like, oh yeah, that's what, we, we sort of had a sense of this, but now we know we have a number to attach to it. What was that takeaway for you?
2: Well, there were two things. One is I was doing back, as, as a logical engineer turned business person, I was doing back of envelope calculations on the economic impact. So. It was actually good to see that my estimates through my reading on on economic impacts were, were pretty close. And that was the first thing. And the second thing was, thank goodness uh, that we have that kind of impact. But this is just for 2022. It's not a cumulative thing. But what it shows is that we're having significant um, activity, um, you know, in the in the region. But I, I look at it as a cautionary tale because the spaceport was dreamed about in the 90s after the Ansari X Prize and, and scaled composites won it. And then our governor, Richardson, um, you know, may he rest in peace, he just died. But he he made a deal with Sir Richard Branson in, in 2004, 2005. And then the spaceport, you know, began to be built in 2006. You know, we had to get an FAA license. We had to get um, the New Mexico Spaceport Authority had to be created by the legislature. I work for um, the state of New Mexico. So, you know, our economic impact is good. I'm very happy with it. But it's a cautionary tale to all of those people. All around the world, who are working on building commercial spaceports, that this is not easy. Um, you got to have the right set of ingredients, and you better have some patience too, because it it takes a while. You know, as we know, space is hard, and then I said the other day, spaceporting is hard. It's hard to do this, and so these are good numbers, but a lot of people would say in the state that well, we've waited you know almost twenty years for those good numbers, so they better be good. Um, in the meantime, there's an opportunity cost with that money. That money that the state of New Mexico spent could have been spent on something else and there could have been um, a benefit. So it's good numbers, but like I said, a cautionary tale.
0: We mentioned one of your your customers, so that's Virgin Galactic, very famously launching from Spaceport America. And now they're picking up the cadence this year. So next year's report is going to be really interesting after uh, all this increased cadence from Virgin Galactic. So I'd be very curious to hear about how your customer, Virgin Galactic, is they're increasing flight cadence, how that's affecting Spaceport America and maybe how operations might be changing. Walk us through that. Yeah.
2: No, it's it's um, we expect a lot more impact because of their monthly activities. And of course, what they've said is in 2025, 2026, they expect to be delivering the Delta class version of spaceships, which will hopefully increase their cadence to um, more than once a month. We'll start talking once a week, for example. So in two or three years, we can talk about real impact. Of course, we have other customers um, that, that come and go at the spaceport. Some are there for months at a time. Some are there for weeks at a time. So we also count that impact. And then even the Spaceport America Cup, which is uh, once a year, you know, a very large event, we count that impact too. But part of, you know, th- we're trying to do with the spaceport is, is we got the jobs and we've got the, the, we now have some direct impact, but we're also focused on this idea of building an aerospace ecosystem in the area, which is something we've started to call Space Valley. I don't know if you've heard about that.
0: A little bit. Yeah. Could you tell us a little bit about that? That's a really interesting idea. Yeah.
2: What I'm realizing now is that people that studied whether a spaceport could be in New Mexico in the 90s, they weren't just focused on putting in a spaceport. They were focused on creating a keystone-type activity in the state that could build the whole aerospace ecosystem. And and that, by the way, is part of the cautionary tale. Cause if you look at some of the other spaceports that are being proposed or even some that are being built right now in the country and around the world, they really don't have the opportunity for a complete aerospace ecosystem. They're, they're going to be able to do launch and they're going to have some businesses that might form around the spaceport. But what makes New Mexico unique is, you know, from Los Alamos to El Paso, as I've been saying, you know, we've got great universities, we've got aerospace um, activities from the federal government um, in several different places, the Air Force Research Lab, um, the DOE Laboratories, Los Alamos and Sandia, um, White Sands Missile Range. And so you add in the spaceport and what you have now is a place where you can launch um, vertically, horizontally, and eventually come down back down to Earth because we're working on our FAA reentry license right now. So this economic impact is really cool, but I'm, I'm really hoping it will be, you know, talk to me in five years and, and five or 10 years and we'll see something really spectacular, I think.
0: Hmm, It's going to be interesting. It's, it's a very interesting time right now. I'm, I'm really excited and interested in seeing what's happening. Um, and I'm just curious, uh, as, you, as you look ahead to the future, any thoughts on, as you said, in five years, when we get back to you on what's going on, like, what, what do you think Spaceport America is going to look like five years from now?
2: Well, we, we're definitely focused on some of um, the, the possible launch systems that could launch orbitally from Spaceport America. And um, so, you know, there's something like four or five or six private space stations being worked on right now. And of course, we're going back to the moon. There's a lot more space tourism that could happen in space. People are talking about mining in space. And, and as I mentioned, we're working on a reentry license, so, um, you know, potentially a capsule or or the Sierra Space Dream Chaser vehicle might be able to come back to uh, Spaceport America. So if you kind of fast forward a little bit and you look at the, what could be happening in space, you're talking about having to bring a lot of people and a lot of cargo up into space and to bring a lot of stuff home. So there's, there's a lot of pressure on the Eastern Range, you know, the Cape Canaveral, to do all that work right now. And of course, they have one major customer, SpaceX, who, who, has, who got there first and is doing a great job and they're able to come and they're take off and they're able to land. Well, at some point, there's going to be, you know, many more launch providers that need to do the same thing. So the Spaceport America, we think, is well positioned that when they design a vehicle that's safe enough, you could, you could launch and, and land at Spaceport America. And, and something's going to have to get, because the amount of cargo, again, that's going to have to go to space over the next 10 years is, is kind of phenomenal.
0: Our third guest today is Emily Dwinels director of the Maine Spaceport Initiative. I asked Emily, what's being envisioned in Maine?
3: So the Maine Space Complex is this moonshot that came to bear a couple of years ago. We're looking at the the Maine Space Grant Consortium, which is a NASA-funded 501c3 um, that exists in every state. was really thinking about the investments they had been making in the state and realizing that they'd been doing some really high-level, really important research, but they hadn't necessarily been getting an ROI on the research. People who were doing it weren't sticking around. There was no space industry in the state. And so it started Dr. Terry Shahada kind of thinking about how could we change this? And so they got together a handful of 17 people from the space industry within Maine, And they just spitballed ideas. And what they came up with was this concept of a Maine space complex. It had, you know, several other names before that, but that's sort of the latest iteration. And what the complex is really meant to do is to take advantage of Maine's natural geographic location, which is actually a competitive advantage for launch because it hangs out over the eastern seaboard and um, is an excellent place to launch into polar orbit. So identifying this as a sort of strategic advantage, they decided to move the, the sort of inquiry forward, which is when I came on board and started developing the main space complex. So the main space complex, to answer your question, is a three-legged stool uh, and it's focused on launch services. So the establishment of a spaceport in Maine. The second piece is data and analytics. So it's a taking whatever's downlinking from space from the satellites and um, making a service or productizing that data. And then the third piece is an innovation hub. So it would be focused on R&D to spin up more in-state space industry.
1: So can you tell me a little bit about the history of how this started, where you're at at the moment and what the next steps are for the program?
3: Uh, We really kicked this off in 2017. Um, It's when the idea started percolating. And then I got involved in 2019, which was the initial feasibility study. So if we build it, will they come? And I was really reaching out to in industry and saying, you know, what are you experiencing in launch? Is there a backlog? Is there a need? Do we have demand? What does this look like? And where's the industry going? And so we had, we sort of worked through the stage gate process Um, that was conclusive. There was demand. So we progressed to the next stage, which was the um, business implementation planning, where we sort of formulated and fleshed out all of the business units, the organizational structure, the operating model for the spaceport, and then moved on to the strategic planning piece where we got our, you know, short, mid and near uh, far-term objectives outlined. And from there, Today, what we're doing is looking sort of into the future of space. What is the future of space going to look like? And how do we develop a workforce that will be equipped to enter and contribute out of the gates? So, in the current moment with regard to the space complex, we have just passed legislation in the state of Maine to create a private public partnership called the Maine Space Corporation. And so the corporation is actually just being instituted. They were sworn in this past week and they will be taking over at the helm to drive forward the strategic plan.
1: Nice, that's what really leads into my next question. Who's funding the idea behind having a space complex in Maine?
3: So the funding that we've received so far just to do the initial studies has come from two different bodies. So the first one is the Department of Commerce. And they have contributed some to the last two phases. And we also have an in-state sort of risk capital organization called Maine Technology Institute. They have also contributed some funding as well as the Maine Space Grant Consortium.
1: And what's the reaction been like generally from the public in Maine?
3: It's interesting because, you know, initially out of the gates, it wasn't very public facing. So... Most of the reaction we've gotten, by and large, has been extremely positive. It's been um, very supportive. People are like, their minds are blown. They're so, you know, they're very excited about it. But as you say, you know, anything to do with space has to be implemented in a safe, very safe uh, and sustainable way. And because of Maine's ethos, kind of we want the space to represent that, space complex to represent that. So sustainability is actually a really important piece of, the way that we will go forward to develop and ultimately operate under that value. You know, when we started, when we went through the the bill signing process to initiate and establish the corporation, we started to get some interest from some dissenting dissenters. So we began to see, I think one of the things that was really interesting to me, something that I, I completely would never have guessed, is that there were a lot, a lot of anti-nuclear protesters um, that came out of sort of the woodwork to um, push back on the legislation. And I think it, it sort of highlighted this fact that, you know, space has really evolved since the 1960s and 70s, sort of where you know, most of these people kind of got their grounding and and developed their philosophy around the anti-nuke stance. And while, you know, there's certainly potential for it to be part of the future of space, it's not as much a military government operation as it once was. Obviously, now, today, it's very much commercially focused. Yes, the government is still a big piece of it, but, you know, there's concerns about the government-military complex taking over when really the entirety of our sort of focus right now is on the commercial sector, so there's a lot of misinformation and misinterpretation, some conspiracy around who ultimately will own this. But um, we have just started sort of reaching out and engaging with the environmental groups, which is another big piece of that. Obviously, as you know, doing a environmental assessment is a big piece and, and one of the first pieces of establishing a spaceport is a quite lengthy and pretty in depth process. So. We're not at that stage yet. We're still getting the plans and the location locked down. So we, we haven't crossed that bridge yet, but we're about to start engaging with the communities in Northern Maine that could potentially be homes or sites for the spaceport.
0: feel like we barely scratched the surface when it comes to spaceports and how their roles are going to impact society in the coming years. Our sincere thanks to our guests, Pam Underwood, Scott McLaughlin, and Emily Dwinnells. If you're interested in hearing more about the space industry, join me every day for T-Space Daily. It's available on all major podcast platforms. You can find out more at space.n2k.com. We'd love to know what you think of this show. You can email us at space at n2k.com. Your feedback ensures that we deliver the information that keeps you a step ahead in the rapidly changing space industry. This episode was produced by Alice Carruth, mixing by Elliot Peltzman and Trey Hester, with original music and sound design by Elliot Peltzman. Our executive producer is Brandon Karp. And I'm your host, Maria Varmazes. Thanks for listening.